0: The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. And I would invite you this morning, uh, as we open the Word of God together, to go to Hebrews chapter 10. It's a privilege and joy to be back in the pulpit. We were uh, on vacation for a while. Last Sunday was our question and answer time. And it's good to be able to stand this morning before you to preach the Word of God. It is really the highlight of the week, the highlight of our time together as believers, as the church gathered to be able to hear from God. We hear from God in the preaching and the reading and the proclamation of His Word. And so what a privilege and joy it is to be able to do that. Just to give you a little roadmap for the next few weeks, uh, we're going to resume our study of Romans. Uh, We'll begin in Romans chapter 5, three weeks from today, September 25th, we got through uh, Romans 4 back in June. And we'll resume our study of Romans starting in chapter 5, the end of this month. Two Sundays from now, I'll be gone. I'll be in Florida at a conference and a board meeting uh, for the Expositor Seminary. And so, uh, we will have Matt Hilbert preaching for us that morning. And then on next Sunday, I'm going to preach on the election. And I'm going to attempt to try and give you some insights, uh, some biblical insights on what you need to be thinking about as we approach uh, our national election This morning, though, I would like to finish uh, one final message in our series that we began last uh, July, or just a couple months ago, on the marks of a healthy church member. I actually have about 13 of these messages kind of planned out. We got through five. Uh, I'm going to give you one more. Uh, We'll not get to the rest of them. Maybe sometime in the future we can do that. I want to begin just by reminding you that in this series, we said that healthy churches Are comprised of healthy church members. That a healthy body of Christ is really built on believers who they themselves understand and know and appreciate what it means to be a part of of the church. We've looked at five marks of a healthy church member they have a deep love for the bride of Christ, they have an insatiable hunger for the Word of God, they demonstrate a strong commitment to the membership of the body, they have a humble respect for the leaders of the church, and they purposely preserve the unity of Christ. That's what we've seen so far. This morning, I want to take you to a sixth and final one. It is this, that they practice an intentional investment in the lives of believers. A healthy church member is defined in part by having an intentional investment in the lives of believers. By that, I mean that they're engaged in true fellowship. That they're engaged in genuine, intentional, purposeful relationships. A healthy church member understands that being a part of the church is not just coming on Sunday mornings and kind of checking your Sunday morning box. They understand that it's more than just giving some money and, and participating in a few programs, they're not just spectators or attenders. A healthy church member truly understands that God has given them the privilege and the responsibility of being a part of the bride of Christ and in, investing in and intentionally pursuing relationships within that body. They know, healthy church members do, that they're called to be active participants in the life and the ministry of that church. And they understand that the life of the church is communal. Communal. Now, I think that word community has taken on a lot of baggage over the years, and there's a lot of uh, associations with that term community that may not be actually intended by uh, the Word of God and by God, but I-, I do believe that there is a sense in which the church is communal. It is a community, it is a, a gathering of like minded believers brought into one fellowship where they can engage in real relationships, where they can engage in Mutually sanctifying relationships, where they can engage in the one another's, where they can pursue true and genuine fellowship with fellow believers. The church was never intended to be just a building. It was never intended to be a place where people walk in lonely, listen to something, and walk out lonely. It's not what the church is about. It's not just a structure and it's not just an entity where you kind of check off your membership every once in a while and say, yeah, I belong. No, the church is a place of fellowship. It's a place of personal and intimate and sanctifying and Christ-exalting relationships where there's a, a spurring on of one another and a mutually stimulating kind of relationship where we're spurring one another onto Christ-likeness. And so I believe that in a healthy church... There is a serious investment in relationships that make us more like Christ. It's called fellowship. We need to define that term, so let me do that for you just as we begin this morning. What does the word fellowship mean? It's a word that's found in your Bible a number of times. It's the word koinonia in Greek, and it is a word that many people just associate with cookies and coffee, right? Right? You go to the fellowship hall, and you eat your stale cookies, and you drink your Red Punch, and you're having fellowship. Is that it? Is fellowship what takes place when two Christians get together and talk about sports or cooking or whatever you want to talk about? Is that fellowship? Is fellowship what happens when you go to a committee meeting or, or when you go to a church picnic or a small group get-together? Uh, get is, is that what is, the, is fellowship all about? And I would say it's so much more than that. Fellowship is maybe including some of those things, but it's so much more than, than that as well. That fellowship, the word itself, koinonia, means a, a sharing. It means a togetherness. It means a a like-mindedness, a common purpose, a common goal, a common bond, a a common life, a common cause. This is what fellowship is. It's a partnership. It's a sharing. It's a mutual relationship with one another where there's this, this involvement in one another's lives where we look out for and care for one another's interests for the cause of Christ. This is what fellowship is. The word itself is defined this way in a number of places in Scripture. In Romans chapter 15, verse 26, it's, it's translated as contribution. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. That's part of the idea of fellowship. There's this contribution of, of one another's lives and resources It's translated as sharing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we share in communion with one another. We engage in the Lord's Supper together. And so there's a sharing at the Lord's table of of the, the, the life of Christ and worshiping Him and remembering the forgiveness that He's given us. It's translated as participation in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and the participation of the support of the saints. And so these are some of the terms that are used to define the term koinonia. It's contribution, it's a participation, it's a sharing, it's an involvement in one another's lives. I believe this gets to the heart of what it means to be the church. I believe that it's crucial to the life of any church to understand what true fellowship really is about. I think that's what we see in the early church. In Acts chapter 2 verse 42, it says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They were meeting together, they were worshiping together, they were learning together, they were sharing meals together, and they were fellowshipping together in the early church. We see an evidence of this in Acts chapter 2 at the end of the chapter where they were sharing with one another all the things that they had in common. They were sharing resources. They were sharing homes. They were sharing meals. They were sharing money. They were sharing love. They were sharing prayer. They were sharing all these spiritual blessings that come as a result of being together in the bride of Christ. It's tremendous. This gets to the heart and the soul of what it means to be a member of of the bride of Christ. It's an answer to what Jesus prayed in John 17, 21, when he said that they may all be one. You realize that Christ prayed for that. He prayed that believers would come together, that they would serve one another, that there would be mutually sanctifying relationships which point to Christ's likeness. This is what Christ prayed for, and this is the answer to his prayer, the church. Paul needed this. Paul understood that he can't do ministry by himself. He can't do life by himself. Paul understood that at the core of who he was, an apostle, he needed others in his life. He needed Barnabas. He needed Silas. He needed Titus. He needed all the other men around him, people around him who who served him and, and came alongside of him and ministered to him. Paul understood the centrality of true fellowship in his ministry and his public work. And I believe that's why the scriptures call the church a body. Have you thought about that? There are many metaphors used to describe the church a vineyard and a family and a house. But I think one of the greatest metaphors is a body. And if you think about your body, your physical body, you've got all kinds of different elements that go together in making up who you are. You've got skin, you've got muscles, you've got bones, you've got ligaments. You've got organs, you've got your brain, you've got everything functioning together in one entity. You are a one person with many members, and that's what the church is like. One entity with many members, and they need to function together in order to cause the body to function properly. This is the centrality of fellowship within the church. First Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, for even as the body is one and yet has many members and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. One head, one church, one body made up of many members who function together and serve one another to make the, bun- the body function the way it should. So this is the the reason why we need to think about this. This is the reason why we need to to contemplate this. We have to have a proper understanding of of what true fellowship really, truly is. And the basis for this, as we understand what the scriptures teach, the basis of true fellowship is our bond in Christ. And and this is the, the theological underpinning that makes this reality possible for us. And so the scriptures make it very clear that the reason we can have fellowship with one another is because we have fellowship with God. First Corinthians chapter one, verse nine, says that we that God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. You have fellowship with God. You have fellowship with Christ. You have been brought up, in a sense, into the fellowship of the Trinity. So the Father, the Son, the Spirit all have this fellowshipping relationship that we as believers get brought up into, and we get to participate in that. So we might say that all human fellowship rises out of divine fellowship. So the reason you and I can fellowship with one another is because we've been brought into the Trinitarian relationship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're united. We're brought together by the, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit. We're brought into a, a relationship where we serve one another within the body, and it's essential that we understand then what this fellowship is looks like. And so this is what I want us to, to comprehend this morning. I want to take some time as we begin another ministry year to, to think about the nature of true fellowship and to really contemplate what what that means. I think we do a pretty good job here. Uh, I'm not picking this topic because it's something that I think we all need to to work on. But I do think it's an area that we can continue to excel still more. We can continue to to grow in this area. We can continue to have intentional relationships with one another. And so I want to take some time to do that. Mark this down. Isolation from the church is dangerous. Isolation from the church is dangerous. It's deadly. And if you ever get to the point where you begin to think, I'm not sure I need the church. If you ever get to the point where you begin to think, you know what, maybe the church is not that important. If you ever get to the point where you begin to to think that maybe I could skip this morning, or I could sleep in a little bit this morning, or maybe I could take some time off from, from the church for a little while. Maybe if you're getting to that point, you need to understand that isolation from the church An isolation from true fellowship is deadly to your spiritual life. It is. It's a serious threat to your life. It's a serious threat to the fellowship of this body. And it is one of the devil's oldest tricks in his book of sinful temptations. And you need to be aware of that, that if you ever get to the point where you're beginning to think about, you know what, this is not that important anymore. I've done church for many years. I don't need to be a part of it as much as I was before. If you get to that point, you need to know that that's one of Satan's tricks to tempt you away from the fellowship of the body. It has many consequences. Isolation does. It will give you over to many temptations. It will inhibit your ministry. It will open up your mind for the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It will cause an attitude of independence from the body of Christ. It will build insulation that prevents accountability in your life. It will create loneliness that intensifies the burdens of your life. And all of these are some of the the consequences of, of giving into isolationistic mentality. It's deadly. I want you to see in Hebrews chapter 10 what the writer says. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Look what what the writer says. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing He's very clear. He's talking about here the the crucial part of being a part of the church whereby you're engaged in intentional relationships with one another that then promote the sanctity and growth of the church and your own spiritual growth. It's essential. Now, let me explain why maybe it's important for us to consider this topic specifically. I don't believe the trend today in the church is toward fellowship. I believe the trend in the church today is, is actually away from that. I don't believe what we're seeing in the church today is a trend towards closeness and relationships and, and, and fellowship with one another. I don't believe that's what we're seeing. In fact, I believe what we're seeing in the church today is a movement away from that, away from closeness, away from relationships, and a movement towards isolation, and a movement towards privacy, and a movement towards seclusion. I think technology has fostered that. I believe what we're seeing today is is a society whereby technology has actually caused us to become more fragmented, and more isolationistic, and more private as a people, I think that's what we're seeing take place because of the technological movement that we're in today. I'm not anti-technology. I have a Facebook account. I have a smartphone. I watch television, I watch some movies, I have a laptop. I'm not anti-technology by any stretch of the imagination. But I think what we're seeing in our culture is that as screens get smaller, Privacy increases. And so as people have their smartphones and they have their laptops and they have, their, have all of these other things, what begins to take place is that there begins to be a privatization of a culture. And that's exactly what we're seeing happen today. We are watching before our very eyes the privatization of a culture. You used to have to go to the movies to watch a movie. Today, you can sit in your house, you can sit in your car, you can sit in your office, and you can 24-7, you can watch all by yourself some form of entertainment right before your eyes on a, on a tablet or on a cell phone. And so, what I think we're seeing is this desire to move more towards individualism and privacy and seclusion and isolationism within our culture, rather than a movement towards relationships and a movement towards fellowship. I know this is the case because you get a bunch of young people together in a room, and they don't talk, right? They're texting They're engaging in one another through the screen, and they're sitting right next to each other. So I believe what we're watching is technology has created this entertainment-oriented culture whereby you can exist in your own bubble. You can exist in your own world. In fact, you can create your own world. Online, you can create your Facebook identity and you can create your online avatar and you can create your online profile and you can game and you can watch movies and you can do all this stuff thinking that you're engaging in real relationships when you're under the illusion that those aren't real relationships. I was reading an article this week, it was a CNN article back from November of 2015. And it says that the average teenager today spends nine hours a day online. Nine hours. Tweens ages 8 to 12 spend six hours a day consuming media. 53% of tweens, those are kids ages 8 to 12, have their own tablet. And 67% of teens have their own smartphones. My kids are going to use that as ammunition now to try and get one for themselves. The writer or the author who is quoted in this article, James Stayer, he says this. He says, quote, I think the sheer volume of media technology that kids are exposed to on a daily basis is mind-boggling. He says, quote, it just shows you that these kids live in a massive 24-7 digital media technology world and it's shaping every aspect of their life. They spend far more time with media technology than any other thing in their life. This is the dominant intermediator, intermediary in their life. Then he goes on to say this, he says, I just think that it should be a complete wake-up call to every parent, educator, policymaker, business person, and tech industry person that the reshaping of our media tech landscape is first and foremost affecting young people's lives and reshaping childhood and adolescence. End quote. You hear what he's saying? He's saying that the new media technological frontier is drastically affecting how kids are being raised, and it's actually reshaping their childhood, and it's becoming the dominant influence in their life. Now, again, it's not all bad. There's great things that can come out of those things, but but listen. If you're growing up in the world that says you can live and exist and operate in this world without really truly interacting with people, then all of that militates against relationships with real people. And so here's a reason why we as the church need to understand this, that the cyber world cannot replace real fellowship. It can't. The cyber world cannot replace what the church has to offer, and anything that you'll find online is not a real substitute for what you're going to find in the bride of Christ in the church. And so that's why we need to talk about that. And I believe that's why you have verses in the Scriptures like Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25, where you have a very clear statement in here about the priority of fellowship, the priority of church, the priority of relationships, the priority of intentional engagement with one another in in the body of Christ. I want to take some time this morning to briefly talk through these two verses with you because I believe they provide a, a framework for us. A framework that really demonstrates for us the priority of the bride of Christ, the priority of these relationships, and the priority of engaging in very intentional relationships within this body of believers. This is found in the lettuce portion of Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. Verse 24, let us consider. This is the, the lettuce portion, and it's, it's the writer's way of saying, okay, in light of all that I've told you now in the book of Hebrews, in light of all of these marvelous truths I've stated to you about Christ and the centrality of Christ and the glory of Christ and the superiority of Christ, in light of all of that, in light of all of the, the superiority of who he is and his work, therefore, then these should be some of the implications, One of the implications is verses 24 and 25. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How important is fellowship? How important are relationships? How how important are are, are the people sitting next to you to your own spiritual life? How how crucial is this body to your own spiritual development? writer of Hebrews tells us. And he gives us some very foundational features here of true fellowship. I want to take you through them. Five of them, just briefly. That's a long introduction to a very short message. Five foundational features of true fellowship. Let's look through these very briefly together. First number one is the preparation for true fellowship. The preparation for true fellowship. And we see this in verse 24. The writer has just described the the priesthood of Christ. He's just described the glories of Christ. He's just described the, the sacrifice of Christ and how it's Superior to any animal sacrifice, and how it's superior to any of the priests, and it's superior to anything that the old covenant could have offered. So, in light of that, he says, verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The word consider it's the word that means to think carefully, or, or to, to process, or to put your mind into it, or to understand, or to perceive, or to observe or to be concerned about. It's the idea here of actually committing yourself to a very specific mental process by which you are thinking about the importance of fellowship. I think what you can see here is that fellowship requires forethought. Fellowship requires consideration. Fellowship requires preparation. Fellowship requires some intense planning ahead of time. And that's what he's getting at here. In the context, you need to understand that some of these people in the Hebrew community were actually contemplating going back to Judaism. They were thinking about going back to to the tenets of old covenant, they were more familiar with that, they were more secure in that, they were uncomfortable with the persecution that they were encountering at that point. And so they were tempted to cast aside their identification with Christ and to move back to Judaism. And, and the writer of Hebrews says, no, you need to think about how to consider, how to put your mind into making sure that that doesn't happen in the context of your Relationships. He says, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds. Very important. Fellowship requires planning. Fellowship requires forethought. Fellowship requires some intentional consideration beforehand to to actually engage in these proper relationships. And so what I think he's getting at here is that he knows that Proper fellowship doesn't take place without some forethought, without some planning, without some consideration. And he knows that naturally we don't think about others. We naturally come together, we, we think about ourselves, we don't we don't naturally put ourselves in a place where we're thinking about how to be a spiritual encouragement to one another. We don't naturally think about how we're going to provoke one another to love and good deeds. And so he's saying, you need to come to a point where you realize that part of your spiritual responsibility in the bride of Christ is to think about how you're going to lovingly engage fellow believers in their relationship with Christ as well. You need to consider that. You need to think about that. Look at verse 24, and let us consider how. That talks about a a plan, that talks about a a purposeful plan to engage one another for the cause of Christ. It's it's an intentional thing, it's it's purposeful, it's where you actually put some forethought into coming together with fellow believers. There's a plan, there's a purpose, there's some forethought that goes into these kinds of relationships. Relationships. means that we're praying for one another. It means that we're praying about how God can use us to serve one another. I remember here an old pastor once say, you know, I start every Sunday morning thinking and praying for a specific opportunity to talk to specific individuals. As I start every Sunday morning, spending some time in prayer, that God would ordain the conversations for me to have, that God would ordain the individuals for me to talk to. That's forethought. That's insight. That's preparation for coming together with the bride of Christ to be able to exhort and admonish and move them towards greater levels of spiritual maturity. It takes forethought, it takes consideration. That's what healthy church members do. They think about it. That they put some thought into what it's going to be like when they're on their way to church and what it's going to be like when they get there. And they're thinking about specific people that they want to talk to or need to talk to. They're, They're thinking about specific individuals that maybe they need to have a conversation with to spur them on in their relationship with Christ. There's a desire to be a catalyst to move others Towards greater levels of holiness. And that takes time, that takes preparation, that takes forethought, that takes consideration. And that's what Paul is, or the writer of Hebrews here, is talking about. We had a saying in the military proper, prior, preparation prevents poor performance. That's good. It works in the church too. Proper prior preparation when coming together with the bride of Christ enables us to effectively serve one another to promote Christ likeness in our relationships. It requires some preparation. That's point number one. Point number two, I want you to see the second one. There's uh, then the intentionality of true fellowship. Not only the, the, the preparation for it, but number two, the, the intentionality of true fellowship. You see it in verse twenty four. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. The word stimulate. Paragus usmos, which which means to, to provoke or to move or to 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 be an inciting towards, to, to stimulate someone, to move someone for something. This is normally meant in the negative sense where you're provoking me or you're irritating me. But here it's used in a positive sense where where the writer says, no, you need to be about pursuing others and provoking others and spurring one another on and stirring others up so you can push them towards Christ-likeness. That's the idea. Stimulate, incite, be intentional, be purposeful. You're looking for ways to, to provoke others in a good way to righteousness and holiness and godliness. The idea here is being purposeful. And I think the writer here understands that on our own, that we can't do this by ourselves, that we can't do the Christian life without help from others. We can't do it on our own, that we can grow and we can learn and we can mature through the reading of God's Word, but we can't do it all on our own, that we all have blind spots. That's why being a monk doesn't work doesn't work you need people in your life you need the people sitting around you you need relationships you need others engaging you and working with you to to help grow you and mature you and sanctify you and the writer understands that that you need them and they need you and we're all in this together and so there needs to be some intentional preparation and some intentionality in moving together and stimulating one another to love and the good deeds you can't wing it we can't just kind of get together and hope that something happens and it all turns out for our good. No, no, it takes some intentionality, some forethought, some specific stimulating one another to love and to good deeds. It's intentional, where you come on a Sunday morning, not just because you know you need to be here, but because you're wanting to be a catalyst in the life of another believer to move them towards a greater level of holiness and righteousness. This is essential for true fellowship to take place. You ever be around those kind of people? Those kind of people that when you leave, you just you, you feel like a greater desire to to pursue Christ. You have a greater motive, a greater energy, a greater desire to 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 crush sin in your life, and to move towards holiness. You ever be around those people? It's encouraging, it's stimulating, it's, it's provoking. That's what it should be like. Intentionality, preparation. Number three, There's a third feature here you need to be aware of, it's the purpose. The purpose of true fellowship. And again, the writer of Hebrews tells us what that is, verse 24 and verse 25. We're going to see in both of these verses some very specific purposes for engaging in true fellowship with one another. And verse 24 says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then verse 25 says, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. So what should the church be like? It should be an entity, it should be a body where there's a mutual stimulation to love and good deeds and encouragement where you serve one another. That's what the bride is like. That's the the priority of, of being a part of something like this. And by the way, this is something the world longs for. They're desperate for this kind of fellowship. The world wants nothing more than to be a part of these kinds of relationships, and they want desperately to belong to something, and they want desperately to be a part of something where there's some mutuality and some commonality and some purpose and some encouragement and some some people around them. The world longs for this, but they fill it with all kinds of different things, clubs, teams, bars. Bars. And here, God has built within the DNA of the Bride of Christ a place where these kinds of relationships naturally take place when believers have it on their radar and are spiritually attentive to this priority of a church. So, what's the purpose of this? To stimulate one another to love and good deeds. What's God's purpose for your life? What's God's purpose for your life? Why, why has He saved you and why has He brought you into a relationship with Himself through Christ? Why, why has God done that? What is God's purpose for your life? I want the purpose-driven life in one sentence is to be like Christ. That's it. To be like Christ God has, has saved you and brought you into fellowship with himself to be like Christ. Romans eight twenty nine says he's predestined you to adoption for the purpose of being conformed to the image of Christ. That's why he's done all this work in your heart and saved you and brought you to fellowship with himself. It's to sanctify you, to, to, to bring you into a relationship with him so you can be made like Jesus Christ. And every influence in your life right now is being done for that purpose. why you're married to who you need to be married to so you can become more like christ it's why you have the kids that you do because god wants to make you more like christ by using them it's why you have the job that you have it's why you live where you live it's why all the circumstances in your life are taking place right now because god wants you to be holy he wants you to be like christ he wants you to be conformed to his image that's why you're part of the church. The primary reason God has put you together in this body or anybody is to be a part of loving, gracious relationships where you can mutually stimulate one another, verse 24, to love and to good deeds. God wants to make you more loving. You understand that? That's why God has saved you. That's why God has put you in the church, the bride of Christ, because he wants you to be more loving. It's the whole mark of Christianity. The whole distinguishing character of the Christian life is love. It's what Jesus said in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another, because by this, all men will know that you're my disciples. you need to be more loving. I can say this with confidence, knowing that not all of us here are at the same level of loving as we should. We're not at the level of maturity where we're loving people around us the way we should. And I can say that because that's the case for me. I don't love as I should. I don't love my wife as I should. I don't love my children as I should. I don't love you as I should. I don't love neighbors and family members like I should. I need to learn to grow in my love for the people that God has placed in my life. And so do you. Husbands, you need to be more loving. Wives, you need to love your husbands more. Children, you need to love your parents more. Parents, you need to love your children more. You you all need, we all need here to, to learn to love better because we haven't reached that level of perfection yet in Christ likeness. And so God has designed the church to be a place where you can learn to love others by watching it take place in others and learning from others around you. It's the glory of the church. You need people, you need Christians, you need the people sitting next to you to teach you to be more loving. And that's why true fellowship is so essential because it's in the fellowship relationships, it's in the bride of Christ, it's in those mutually sanctifying relationships where we are learning and sharpening one another to become more loving. verse 24. And not only do we need to learn how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, or love, we need to learn to stimulate one another to good deeds, to, to more and more evidences of our Christ-likeness, to so more and more evidences of our relationship with Christ. We are saved for the purpose of good works. Ephesians says we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand for us. God has so designed us and saved us that He's actually, in His sovereignty, determined which good works He wants us to engage in, and we need fellow believers in our lives to help us learn how to do that. We're saved to be zealous for good deeds, Titus 2.14 we're saved, Titus 3.8 says, to engage in good deeds. God has designed the church to be the place where you see that lived out, which then becomes an example to you and to us corporately to learn how to do that together with one another. So we need to learn to stimulate one another to love, to good deeds. Look down at verse 25. We need to learn how to encourage one another, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Parakaleo, to comfort and to exhort. That's what's bound up in this term encourage. There's there's times of comfort and there's times of exhortation. There's times of coming alongside and ministering to those who are struggling, and there's times of exhorting and confronting and, and pushing towards uh, holiness and righteousness. And this is the essence of encouragement. It's a two-pronged entity. It's times of comfort, times of hope, times of coming alongside those who are struggling. And at the same time, it's coming alongside those who are in sin and caught in their trespasses. And at times, we need to lovingly confront. And that's what the Bride of Christ is about. Mutual encouragement. Mutual edification. Mutual spurring one another on to love and to good deeds. A healthy church member understands that. A healthy church member understands that they need the church to help them in those areas specifically. Number four, another feature of true fellowship is the regularity of true fellowship. The regularity of true fellowship. Look at verse twenty-five. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. See how often do we engage in this kind of fellowship? How often are we to participate in this mutual spurring one another on? The writer says very clearly: not forsaking our own assembling together. How's it to take place? To take place regularly to take place on a regular basis, to to not get to a point where you you say, well, I I don't really need the church. I don't really need to be there today. I I don't really want to participate for a while. No, that's not an option for a Christian. The writer says you, you have to see the importance of this. You have to prioritize the corporate gathering to prioritize the church, to prioritize the relationships within that body and not forsaking your own assembling together. Apparently, there were some within the congregation that this writer was writing the book of Hebrews to that were doing exactly that. We don't know exactly why. Perhaps the persecution that they were under, perhaps they had been maligned for their identification with Christ, perhaps they had lost their houses, or perhaps they had been threatened with their own life because of their identity with Christ. We don't know for sure, but for some reason, there were some within that corporate entity who are saying, you know what? It's not a priority for me. I don't need to be there. There's people today who fall into the same mentality. I don't need the church. It's optional. It's not a priority. It's, it's not that important. I don't get much out of it. And the writer of Hebrews says, Don't ever come to the point where you say it's not a priority. Don't ever come to the point where you can get comfortable forsaking the assembling together. Because of what takes place there, because of the fellowship, because of the relationships, because of what God wants to do in you and through you as a part of that church, because of what God wants to do through the relationships in that body, don't ever come to the point where you can not prioritize the corporate gatherings. You need to be there. You need to be there regularly. You need to be there on a, on a regular basis because that's where sanctification takes place. That's where God has put people in your life they are going to rub you. And kind of knock off some of those areas that need to be sanctified and grown. God does that through relationships within the church. We should fight for our time to be a part of the bride of Christ. We should be fighting for that. We should be saying, I have to be there. I have to be there. I will be there. I'm not going to let things creep into Sunday mornings. I'm not going to let things creep into my life so that the things of the Lord and the things of the church become less and less and less of a priority. We should fight for our times with brothers and sisters in Christ because of what takes place in those interactions. Crucial. Essential. Think about what takes place as you gather with fellow believers. Preaching of the word, there's the worship of God, there's conversations that move you towards greater levels of holiness. How would we as believers want to be anywhere else? Not forsaking the assembling together as some in the habit are doing. Well, last. Number five is the urgency of true fellowship. The urgency why is this so important? I mean, is this really, really necessary to spend a whole message on this? Is this really a crucial topic to address? I mean, of course we meet together. Of course we talk together. Of course we engage in relationships with one another. Why do we have to speak about it in such a specific and pointed fashion? Look at how the writer closes verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more. All the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more as you see the day coming close. You say, What's the day? Well, some say it was the destruction of Jerusalem and the fact that Jerusalem was going to be overtaken by the Romans, and because of that, they needed to do this with intentionality and focus, and that could be the case, but I think the, the reference here is truly to the second coming of Christ. All the more as you see the day drawing near, all the more as you see the fact that Christ is coming, all the more as you see the fact that Christ is on His way back, that you could at any moment find yourself in the presence of Christ in His glorious second, return, second coming. I find it very interesting that the writer makes the connection between fellowship and the second coming of Christ. This is eschatological fellowship. This is an understanding of the end times that has a specific bearing upon how we think and how we act within the church. And because Christ is coming back, the writer says, there's not much more important things than you can do than to spur one another on to love and good deeds and spiritual growth. That's crucial. The second coming should affect our fellowship. The second coming should affect our spiritual maturity. The second coming should affect our relationships with one another. The second coming of Christ, the fact that we could at any moment find ourselves in the presence of Christ, should have a direct bearing upon how we interact with one another within the church. Every day is a day closer to the return of Christ. Every day. Do you realize that every single day that comes and goes, you are one day closer to seeing Christ? And if that's the case, then shouldn't our interactions, and shouldn't our fellowship, and shouldn't our relationships be that which spur one another on to be like him whom we'll see, Lord willing, in a short time. So this is what healthy church members do. They see the priority of fellowship. They say it's essential to be there. They understand that they're not just spectators, but they're participants. They, they realize that there's more to church than just coming in and filling a seat. They realize that there is there to be, there, there to be an essential part of that body where there's a mutual spiritual encouragement towards Christ-likeness and towards spiritual growth. I'm grateful for you. I know that this is your desire. I know that this is the desire, desire of our church. Let us excel still more. Let us continue to pursue one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds so that when we see Christ, we will together have grown corporately and see him face to face, knowing that we become more like him. Would you pray with me? Father, we want to thank you for the fact that you have shown us very clearly from your word what it means to be a part of the church. Lord, I thank you for the fact that your word is clear, your word is accurate, your word is concise, your word is pointed, and your word has a way of showing us very specifically what we need to be about. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to sanctify us in these areas. We thank you so much, Lord, for the gift that you've given us of one another. We thank you so much, Lord, for your grace in providing us Fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, that act as a spiritual catalyst to grow us and to sanctify us and mature us. Lord, may we be intentional, may we be purposeful, and we may we be those, Father, who proactively engage in mutually sanctifying relationships so that when we see Christ. We will be prepared and ready to worship him in fullness. So, Father, we thank you for these things. As we break from here, Lord, may we put into practice the very things that we have heard for your glory and for our good. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, Delight in God's Son and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.